Let's take a, a look at this pack that I gave you, Mosaic Covenant, a Sudan and Vassal Treaty, because um, as we begin today, and it's, I'm thinking this is going to take at least two sessions, today and next week, possibly longer, but I, I don't think so. Um, chapter 20 uh, of the book of Exodus is what we normally call the Ten Commandments or um, the moral law of God summarized, or the character of God revealed, or God's basic framework for us as, as human beings in terms of how he wants us to live. Now, I said that about four or five different ways. It is, it is truly one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, and almost anyone, regardless of, of who they are, where they're from, or what their worldview is, have heard of the Ten Commandments. Uh, up until fairly recently, the Ten Commandments used to be everywhere, in statuary, in plaques, uh, in front of schools, uh, in the Supreme Court building in the United States, in the United States House of Representatives, there is a copy of the Ten Commandments on the wall. Uh, it is, had been regarded historically as the foundation for law, it was something that was studied in law school. It was something that was referred to as foundational to our understanding of law, regardless of its Jewish Christian orientation. Uh, we've lost a lot of that. I'm sure you know there have been court cases demanding that the Ten Commandments be removed from schoolyards, from um, public buildings, and all of that, which is, is actually quite tragic. So I don't want to get into any of that. What I want to do in, in our study of this is to see it really the way it is presented in, in the book of Exodus as the constitution for the nation of Israel. Now I'm using kind of a Western term for it, but in a way that's really, it's really what it is. It is God's constitution for this nation that he's creating. He brings them out of Israel, where they were, uh, sorry, out of Egypt, where they were formed in that little cocoon of safety and security in Goshen. Uh, they have now distinctively formed themselves of a nation. They're called the community of Israel, nation of Israel. And God has been directing and guiding them. And now he wants to give them their constitution, their framework. But here is what I'm trying to do with this sheet. It's something very unique. It is in the form of a treaty. It is in the form of a treaty in the ancient world, which was very typical. At the top of that sheet is a suzerain-vassal treaty. Unless you're a student of history, this is probably the first time you've ever seen that. But if you are a student of history, ancient history particularly, you will perhaps recognize that because we have found in archaeology, particularly for example, in the Hittite Empire, the Hittite Empire was centered in what is today modern Turkey. At its great library, Bohus Khoi, which is not that far from Ankara, uh, they have discovered dozens of these treaties. Because whenever the Hittite Empire would conquer an area, they would force this treaty on the people they conquered. And obviously the suzerain was the Hittite Empire, and the vassals were the people they just conquered. Uh, Babylonia did that. Assyria did that. 
to one degree or another, although they called it something differently, when the Roman Empire conquered an area, they did something like that. So does this mean God is imposing something on Israel? No. What God is doing is he's taking a form or a structure or a practice or a tradition or a framework, again, I'm trying to use different words to, to explain it, that was very common and well-known in the ancient world. The difference is God is the suzerain. Suzerain is just an old fancy name for like the sovereign or the ruler, and vassals would be the children of Israel. They are to serve him, and this is what's unique, as he serves them. And so what I did in this, this sheet, and it goes on for several pages, is give you the outline of a typical suzerain vassal treaty and how what is in the book of Exodus and its complement in the book of Deuteronomy fits that. That's exactly what God is doing. But before we get into that specifically, if you look at uh, uh, number one and number two under the introductory comment, I want to do two large, big picture, 100,000 foot, foot kind of perspectives. And so the first question is, what is the relationship between this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law, and the Abrahamic covenant? We have to establish that relationship. Now, you may or may not remember, we've talked a little bit about this, but not in a major way. Today, I want to develop this in a major way. So this is what I'd like to do, and I'm very thankful, Joel, that this is here. May I write on this? Yes. Are you sure? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I don't want to do something that the international will be angry. Okay. Oh, man. Isn't he a wonderful person? I want to do this vertically like this. That's, uh, so this is like a vertical timeline. If I use that language, you know what I mean by that? A vertical timeline? You know what a timeline is. So this is how in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this is how it's presented. So this vertical line with an arrow, and I'm going to make it, if I put ellipsis points, do you know what that means? And it goes on. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal, unconditional covenant. So let's call, let's just put this, I'm not going to write it all out, but this is the Abrahamic covenant. Established with Abraham, um, approximately, I'll just round it off, approximately 2000 B.C. I'm rounding it off, but just so it'll be easy to remember. The Abrahamic covenant. And with the ellipsis points, this goes on. Now, the law, which is what we're about to study, is added onto the Abrahamic covenant until, and this is the language the Bible uses, added to, and then it says, until. So, in trying to think through how the Bible presents at this big 100,000-foot perspective, it presents the relationship between the Mosaic covenant... Again, I'll abbreviate that. That's an A. Or what is sometimes called the law. That's what we're talking about here. The scriptures use this language that the Mosaic Covenant, the law was added to the Mosaic Covenant until something occurs. Okay, when was it added? In 1446 
B.C. That's the year we're at. Right now in our study, and you want to give it a, an exact uh, precise time, it's 1446. And the until is until Messiah comes. Now, we already know when this was all laid out, they didn't know exactly when that was going to occur, but we do know this was A.D. AD 33 is when Jesus dies on the cross. If you want the exact date, it's April 3rd, A.D. 33. He then is raised from the dead three days later. So here you have, this is very clear in Scripture, a precise beginning and a precise ending. Now you can understand why the Orthodox Jew thinks that the law is still going on. Why? Because they don't believe the Messiah has come. So they're still waiting for the Messiah. So for the Orthodox Jew, they would not accept this because they'll accept this, but they won't accept this because they don't think the Messiah has come yet. So what we want to do, and this is what I'm trying to, I hope this is clear to you, is I want you to understand that the Bible establishes a relationship between this covenant and this covenant. And I want to talk about why God does it this way in the second major point in the introductory comments. But if you don't understand the relationship of this, by this I mean these two covenants, then you're, you're missing something in how God presents the two and the relationship between the two. So now that I've done this in this mess that is written up here, this is a real mess, but hopefully as I did it step by step, you can follow it. So seriously, if you don't understand this, ask me a question. But I, I want you to see this relationship in terms of time between the Abrahamic covenant, which is, you already know what that is, land, seed, and blessing. We studied that quite a long time ago. But the, the unconditional, unilateral characteristic of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's the eternal covenant. It goes on into eternity as God fulfills it. The Mosaic covenant is conditional and it's temporal. It has a specific beginning and a specific ending. All right, got it? I'm going to give you an assignment of a thought paper for next week on this. No, I won't. But anyway, I don't know why I said that, because if I start doing things like this, Joe will just have to cancel it because nobody will show up. <clears throat> All right, are you sure you've got this? Yes, Joel. So it doesn't, is there any um, language in Exodus that says, no, no, no. This comes, um, what I specifically did in the language I added to and then until is from Galatians chapter 3, where Paul, Galatians chapter 3 and 4, where Paul establishes the relationship between the uh, promise, the covenant God made to Abraham and the law. Because he wants, he's trying to do in Galatians what is extremely important. What is the relationship between these two? And then to ask the question, is the purpose and function of the law over? And the answer is yes, it is. Now, there's a lot more we could do with this. I mean, I could spend hours on this. I just want you to see in, a, in kind of a cursory, brief overview the relationship between the two. Because a lot of this is also a, a detailed and established in the book of, of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews really elaborates on this and uh, explains that relationship, explains its function, 
explains its purpose and why it no longer is functioning. And the key word the book of Hebrews uses is Jesus fulfills the law completely and totally. So if he fulfills it, that means its purpose is ended. And that's part of what I, I want to look at with you. All right? This is really good. If you understand this, you are in a minority in evangelical Christian churches. Because most people cannot explain this. But you're no longer among the ignorant. You're now the enlightened ones. <laughs> that sounded terrible. I didn't mean it quite that way. I don't want you to get a haughty spirit and feel proud of yourself. It's just... It's a shame how many people really don't understand things like this. So let's, yeah, Fred. What's the everyday, excuse me, what's the everyday application of this distinction uh, in our lives today? Well, um, boy, there's so many ways I could answer that, Fred. Certainly, at one level, you can answer uh, it this way. You, when you study this kind of big picture, 100,000 foot view thing, you come away with a clear understanding God knows what he's doing. God has a purpose and a plan. And it involves, well, it involves everything, but it, it's very discernible and clear when you study what's sometimes called the biblical covenants, which is a little bit of what we're doing here. I think a second takeaway that's really important for something like this that's a big picture is that, um, you know, I'm a part of this. When God promised Abraham, in you the nations will be blessed, and in that same part of Galatians 3 and 4, Paul says that blessing is the blessing of salvation. That through the descendants of Abraham will come the opportunity of salvation. And of course, who is a descendant of Abraham? Well, Jesus is. <laughs> Jesus is a Jew. He's introduced in the Gospels, Matthew 1 and Luke 4, as the son of Abraham. He's a child of Abraham. He's a Jew, as well as the son of David. And I, I mean, in a way, thirdly, is as we start to study the relationship between these two, we see that God gives us a framework of how we should live our lives. And that is the purpose, that's one of the purposes of the law. Everything God does and everything God reveals has a purpose to it. And it is his word that helps us to really understand what that purpose is. All right? Now let's take a, yes, Woody. By the way, his name is Woody. Whatever else he said, don't, it's Woody. Okay, I'm stuck with that. Anyway, I was discussing this with somebody <clears throat> last night a little bit, and uh, I don't mean it disrespectful, but I mean it that, that God, after this, after he gives these laws, he, he is kind of micromanaging, you know, he's very specific mm-hmm. about what he wants them to do and how they're to obey the laws and apply them. And and he has to do that. I mean, it seems like he has to do that because he knows that he's going to send Jesus at some point up ahead. Mm-hmm. So in the meanwhile, he's going to kind of write herd on these, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You know, Woody, in all the years I've studied and taught this, I've never heard anyone put it that God rides herd. That's, I've never <laughs> put, it, put it that way. But yet, in a way, you're really right. And, and even your phrase, micromanaging. Um, let me think about this with you from a different perspective. Uh, what kind of world is the nation of Israel born into? It's a polytheistic world. It's an animistic world. It's a world, whether you're in Egypt, Babylonia, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, all the groups of people that surround where they're going to settle. They're polytheistic, animistic people, pagan people. And um, they would never, ever, ever, I don't think there were hardly any, if any, atheists in the ancient world. I, not, that's sort of a snide remark. It's sort of a cynical remark, but it's also historically a factual remark. Factual remark, because uh, the ancient world, regardless of where we're, you were, they were pagan polytheistic people. They believed there's a world filled with gods, and everything they did was to try to appease those gods who were angry with them. That kind of mentality. There are many, many, many accounts of the flood in uh, ancient literature, and every single account of the flood, except Genesis 6, uh, refers to the gods being ticked off at humans. The Babylonian myth uh, called the, the uh, uh, Gilgamesh epic talks about the gods, it's always plural, being so upset at all the noise that humans were making, they sent the flood. That's not a moral or ethical reason for the flood. But you go to Genesis 6, it's a clear moral, ethical reason why God sends the flood. So the reason I'm saying all that is, Woody, if God that is now called out Abraham, called out his descendants, formed the nation of Israel uh, to begin to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant promises of land, seed, and blessing, then what kind of God is this? Is this a God just like Amun-Ra, the chief god of the Egyptian pantheon, or Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon, or is he the one true and only god? And what's he like? And how am I supposed to live before him? And is this just like the Canaanites do or the Egyptians do? Every now and then you take a sacrifice and every now and then you think about him because you're afraid you're going to throw a lightning bolt at you or something. That is not how God presents himself here. It is not how we've seen him present himself. And what he is doing here is he's making it very clear. I'm the creator and I'm a moral, ethical God with a righteous character, and that's what I'm revealing to you. And I want you to be holy as I'm holy, which is what he says in Leviticus. And so when we study these, these Ten Commandments, and the way you can see the way I phrased it, this is the framework for ethical living. And it reveals the character of God. This isn't some impulsive afterthought by God. This is... This is at the, the core of who he is, and he's revealing it to them. And then as he says to them, your words, micromanaging, when he says to them, I want you to make your food in a separate way. We call it kosher food. I want you to make your clothing in a, in a specific way. And I want you to do this and this and this. Why? Because I am a 24-7 God, and I want you in everything you do, every facet of your life, every moment, I want you to be thinking about me. And I want you to, I want you to involve me in it. And what's the only way he can accomplish that? 
in your words, to micromanage. Okay, does he have the right to do that? He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's brought them. So he has every right to say to them, this is how I want you to live. And what he'll do with this is he's going to say, you can choose to live your life lots of other ways, but this is the path of blessing. But I've made my world in such a way, if you choose to live outside of this framework, there will be consequences to that. And so the, the application for you and me as we study the Ten Commandments, and that's the way I put it this way in those slides, is this is the path of freedom, of liberation before God, and of a life of blessing. As I told you this, an attorney in one of my other Bible studies years ago said this way, God paints the lines in the tennis court. And you have to understand this guy and how he said that, but he was really getting it. I mean, God, God is God saying, here are the boundaries. These are not boundaries to, to prevent you from enjoying life. These are the boundaries for you to really enjoy life. Because all these other things you have the freedom and power to do if you choose is going to lead to a life of bondage and enslavement. And I don't know about you men, but I see an awful lot of people who have chosen the wrong way to live their lives. And they're in bondage. And I, you know, I'm using that metaphorical when I say that. But. Well, this framework continues today, doesn't it? So, the moral law of God yeah. continues. Mm -hmm. But so that's but not in the framework for Israel, but it does for... It's but a go framework ahead. for all civilization. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. so, that, I, so it confused me a little bit when you say it ends at A.D. 33. I mean, Christ fulfilled the law, but was that all the other It's It's all aspects of the law, John. Jesus fulfills it. And... The ceremonial laws, the civil laws, and all of that that related to the nation of Israel are fulfilled in Christ and come to an end. Okay. So that I mean, of... you do not go up to Jerusalem and offer burnt offerings to the Lord anymore. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because Jesus fulfilled that. That's right. In the work of Hebrews, a once-for-all sacrifice. So we don't have to do that anymore. So that, that's kind of all the additional things that Moses conveyed to the people of Israel this how how you're going to the ceremonial aspects of yes, all that but sort of everything thing. everything about it the importance of the sabbath as a sign of the mosaic covenant uh, the importance of the kosher laws the sacrificial system all of the the, the, the clear instructions about how you make your clothing the feast days the feast of tabernacle all of those things just using examples are fulfilled but the, the because Again, they're summarized as the Ten Commandments because they reflect the character and moral law of God. All of these are repeated in the New Testament. Just because Jesus fulfilled the law, I'm now free in Christ, doesn't mean I have the freedom to lie. You still see instructions in the New Testament, you do not have the freedom to lie. And just all the other frameworks, aspects of, of the moral law of God. Yeah, please. So, working off of these. <laughs> term of hurting God is the ultimate shepherd yes that's a, that's a great metaphor so, the ultimate shepherd so in the Abrahamic covenant there were two herds the, the covenant lineage and Ishmael right and they, they broke off and, that's right and now after, as Christ has paid the price at some point in time 
as the Abrahamic covenant continues, those herds will be brought back together again under Christ. But it, they can be brought back together again, assuming that you accept all that Christ did and personally appropriate to your life by faith. Yes. It's not automatically brought back, but it's that opportunity now, and that becomes a magnificent, which is way beyond this study now, but that's the magnificent, uh, full, and wondrous meaning of the church, the body of Christ. That is, that's a new institution God creates on Pentecost when he sends the Spirit, and it's, it's a fantastic illustration of how God is giving the opportunity for humanity to be reunited and reconciled to him in this age in which we live through the church. The most important institution to God now in terms of his redemptive plan is the church. Which, and I, and I don't necessarily mean that building down in the corner of the development where you live. I mean the universal body of Christ that's manifest in all the local churches, yeah, assuming they teach the truth. All right, now it's a quarter, almost a quarter after, and we've only done one sentence in the handout. So, I mean, that's all right, but maybe we can move into the second part. Yes? Okay, the Abrahamic covenant goes on through time. Yes. But there were other things, like there was circumcision and dietary. Sure. Uh, those fall off? Sure. In the sense that the circumcision from Genesis 17, we learn, is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Right. Okay? So it being a covenant sign for the people of Israel also is fulfilled and ends uh, with, with Christ. Right. Uh, the Sabbath as the sign of the Mosaic covenant ends with Christ. Now, does that mean that rest, which Shabbat, Sabbath means rest, is not important? No. The book of Hebrews has two chapters on that. How important rest is, theologically and in terms of our own life. I'm just using examples that, that, that are an important part of what God is laying out for us in this, what we call the Ten Commandments, as a framework for how you're to live your life, an ethical framework for how you live your life. And that goes out, on. It's out of love that he does that. Oh, sure. You know, it's just like correcting your children because you love them. Exactly. He's doing that too and setting up some boundaries. See, part of the challenge for a human being is when they hear, thou shalt not, immediately, oh yeah? It's like telling your teenager at 13, don't immediately they're instinctively arching their back and saying, oh, yeah? Not my, I know that never happened to your children. I guess it was uniquely my two teenage kids that we raised. So just think of it abstractly. It's a concept to you that you've never personally experienced. You don't, you don't want... What's that? Anyway. Can I move into the second part? Yes. Now, it, it relates to this also kind of really big picture question. Why did God do this? Does his word in any way help us to understand why he added the law to the Abrahamic covenant? Why did he do it that way? Well, as you can see, there's a number of bullets here. And each one of these I've tried to, uh, to cite a biblical source, or uh, it's, it's very evident. Number one is to reveal God's holiness. 
I'll give you one example, 1 Peter 1.15. In other words, studying the law as we're about to study it helps us to understand what the Bible means when he says, I'm holy, I want you to be holy. Now the word holy, whether it's the New Testament word, hagiadzo, or whether it is the Old Testament Hebrew word, they both mean the same thing. Holiness means to be separated from. And holiness, as it is used in both the Old and New Testament, is to be separated from sin, to be separated from evil. And God called the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, out to be a separate nation, to be separate. They are to be different than everyone else around them. You're not to be like the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Canaanites or the Moabites, etc. And so that is part of, as you follow what I'm asking you to do, you are separate from everyone else. Number two, to reveal the sinfulness of sin. Now that sounds redundant. That sounds like, well, what does that mean? In other words, and this is what Paul is arguing in Galatians 3 and in Romans 3, as he presents the moral law of God as a revelation from God. As you study just the Ten Commandments as a reflection of the character of God, and you understand that God is interested not only in your outward acts but your inward motives, you begin to understand the distance between you and God. Do you understand that sentence, what I just said? In other words, and that's what Paul says, the more you study the character of God, the more you understand the distance there is between you and God. Which means somebody has to bridge that gap. Because if he wants to have a relationship with you, somebody's got to bridge that gap. And I, you've seen these, I'm sure, before, but there, there are many ways to describe it. But you have two mountains and a deep, deep valley between them. One mountain is God. The other mountain is sinful humanity. Who bridges the gap? Jesus. It's the cross. And humanity can walk across that gap because of what Christ has done. But the, the sinfulness of sin means the depths of our depravity and distance because of what we've chosen to do from God. And it, among other conclusions, it helps us to understand our need for him. Number three, to reveal the standard for holiness as it applies to one who desires to walk with God. And I just had to add, Jesus fulfills this and it's applied to our life by faith. That's another way of the, the gap is bridged by the cross, and we can walk across that. <clears throat> it enables us to walk with God. I, I've told you this before, and this, to me this is one of the most crystal clear things I can see in the Word of God. Why did God create you? Why did he create me? A lot of ways you can answer that question, but one of them is, is, is clearly this. God is a God of love. In 1 John chapter 4, twice we read God is love. And we know that in eternity there was love and communion between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That's, 
That is one of the central aspects and characteristics and attributes of who God is. So for all eternity, can you say there was love and communion? Yes. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, speaks of the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Later on in the Gospel of John, the Spirit is brought into that. And you, you say, okay. So among other reasons, God creates me in his image. Genesis 1, 26, the following. In his image, I resemble him. And he wants a relationship with me. But because I've chosen to rebel against him, that relationship must be on his terms. Which means I've got to have my sin taken care of. Or he can't have a relationship with me. God, who is perfectly holy, can't have a relationship, an intimate personal relationship with someone who is a sinner. So God takes the initiative, bridges the gap, and establishes the means by which we can have a relationship with him. Now listen, this is very important. Does God lower the standard? Does God lower the bar? No. He just makes it possible for us to live in a relationship with him and to uh, have the same standards that he has. Now, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this, in this study, but this is one of the things to really see. Excuse me, Lyle and I have decided to tell you that we do get excited. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I, I, I say that, Woody, as just a, a way to get everybody's attention. Well, you're accusing me of something? No, I'm not. So from here on out, I'll say, except for Woody and Lyle, we don't get excited <laughs> Number three, this is right out of Galatians 3. To function as a schoolmaster. The Greek word there is pedagogy. Did you ever hear of pedagogy? That's where it comes from. It's from a Greek word. A tutor until Jesus comes. And then, okay, what does that mean? For the children of Israel, the law was like a nanny. I probably should have put that in quotation marks. The tutor, the law was like a nanny who guided, protected, and supervised the child until adulthood. See, the way it's presented, we, we look at it as so negative and so restraining. It's not. It served a positive, protective function for Israel. Now, I'm just pausing so you can think about that and reflect on that. In other words, when God gives the law to the children of Israel, and it will have enormous implications for everybody, but for Israel first, what Paul says is, so many of them misunderstood this, that the law is so positive because it was to protect them, to guard them, to nurture them, to, to supervise to nurture them along, if you think of what a tutor does to adulthood. But as is still the case today, when you talk about the moral law of God, many human beings look at it as constraining, as inhibiting. And I want to be free. So what does that mean? Well, I want to be free to lie, and I want to be free to covet, and I want to be, I want to be free to... to 
um, not be a faithful steward in the covenant relationship I have with my wife. And I, I don't want to respect human life. I, I mean, all those things which God is saying. I'm telling you, I create humans in my image. Humans are of infinite worth and value. The sanctity of life is an important thing to God because he created it. So when you say, I want to be free, what do you want to be free from? I just don't want to be dependent on God. I want to be my own person. I want to be autonomous, which is a big word today. That's a big word in the 21st century, personal autonomy. And God is such a creator. He says, okay, if that's the way you want to live your life, but you will you must understand that you will live with the consequences of those decisions. That's the way I made my world. You are free to rebel against me. You are free to reject everything I've done for you. You're free to reject the ethical framework I've given you. But in that freedom, as there always is, freedom always has a consequence. And it can either be very positive or it can be very negative. It depends on how you understand freedom. That fourth bullet is an extraordinarily important one. That it, it is, it's, this gives clarity to what God is doing. Number five, the law was a unifying principle for the nation, for it defined them, and I'm talking here about the nation of Israel, for it defined them uniquely as a nation. Because no one else at the time that Israel lives, no one else had anything like this. Next one, the law thereby separated Israel from the other nations as they become a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. We will see that in the text as we, we unfold this. The ceremonial law, now that's the feast, the sacrificial system, that's what we mean by that, provided an accepted method, acceptable methodology for worship. This is how the children of Israel are to worship God, and this is how God would cover, and the word there is atone, cover their sin, and enable them to have that relationship with him. The law provided a means by one which one who violated the law could be restored to fellowship. And that's really important because the clarity of what God said, there will be people who reject this, but I, don't, I want to continue to welcome them back, forgive them, restore them. He provided a way to do that. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly of all of these, was the law was to reveal Christ. The burnt offering, a sacrifice that you offer sin. The peace offering, a sacrifice you offer and then you sit down, have a meal, and you enjoy an intimate fellowship with one another and with God. You say, okay, you start to see how all of this, and that's what the book of Hebrews does, all of this points to Christ and what he's going to do. So it reveals Christ, and remember, Christ is the word that means Messiah, and uh, the Messiah of Israel. So on your thought paper assignment for next week, I want you to summarize what was the purpose God had in giving the law. Choose one of these and elaborate on it in two paragraphs or less. Obviously, I didn't mean that. That was just a joke, so don't take it seriously. I'm pretty sure none of you took it seriously anyway, but in case one person might have. All right, now take a look at that. Are there any questions?
Do you really understand it? Because we only have 15 minutes left, so I want to make sure that. All right, what are you speaking for the group? We got it. Is that true? All right. Now, I want to start looking at Exodus 20 in just a minute, but take a look, one more, one more point. Just take a look at the handout and the actual Susan Vassal Treaty. I'm not going to go through that right now, but if you look at the bottom of the first page and then into the second and third page, you can see it had eight major parts to it, okay? And what I will do as we start going through it, get a little bit beyond the law itself, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments itself, I want to talk about some of these other parts. But this is, uh, I find this quite profound, that God chose his law as he reveals it on Mount Sinai to Moses, and then Moses reveals it to the people, he was using a framework and a structure that they were very familiar with. But they're to see God as the absolute perfect suzerain, and they are his vassals. Again, that's the language of these treaties. But it would give them a framework for really understanding what God was doing. Now, for you and me, this, this, a suzerain-vassal treaty, that's, a, that's a, an alien concept. We live in a democratic republic. We don't even think about things like this. But up until very recently, that was typically that was typically how a king, whether you're the king of Thailand or the king of England, a king looked at himself, or if it's the queen herself, as a suzerain. And every subject of the kingdom is that suzerain's vassal. Now, that to you and me, as an absolute foreign concept. But outside of our culture, and certainly historically, this is not a foreign concept. And so that's how God has chosen to reveal himself. So let's begin to take a look, finally, <laughs> at, at Exodus 20. So are you all with me? I mean, I'm trying to add some details to make this really historically come alive and to see that God is a God of history. God is using events and circumstances and details to help people really understand what he's doing. And God spoke all these words, verse 1, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, now that's really, really important. That's part of the historic preamble and preparation. It's part of the treaty. But please note, I am the Lord your God. A relationship. It's reviewing refreshing, establishing, whatever verb you want to use there, that God has a relationship with these people. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I am Yahweh. That's who he is. That's his essence. I am the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am in the universe, your Elohim, your personal God. You are my people, I am your God. I am your suzerain, you are my vassals. We have a relationship. Why? Because I freed you from Egypt. So part of why God can say that is what he has done for them. Now he could have said, I am Yahweh, you're Elohim, because I created you. 
But they just came out of Egypt. They just saw him do these absolutely astonishing demonstrations of his power. Yes. We belong to him. He belongs to us because he freed us. So therefore, he has the right to say, you shall have no other gods before me. So if you look at this, these PowerPoint slide copies that I gave you in your note packet, the first four of the moral, ethical law framework that God establishes is the uniqueness of him. If you want to call it commandment number one or proposition number one, he wants a love relationship with us. And the very first, right out of the gate, crystal clear proposition is a commitment to radical monotheism. Now, I put that as a professor. I just had to throw that in there. I had to remind you that in my heart, I'm still a professor. So a professor uses a term like radical monotheism. But what does that mean? There's only one God. There is only one God. And you have to remember, for you and me, uh, you know, I know the guys before me in Sunday school class, if you went to church for a year, but you heard this, you've heard about the Ten Commandments, you see it on plaques and all that stuff, but do you have any idea of how radical that was for the children of Israel in 1446 B.C.? They just left the nation where they lived for 430 years, which was thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly polytheistic. And everywhere they looked, they they saw these monster, monster images of their gods. I mean, some are made out of granite. Some are made out of limestone. Depended on where they came from and all that. But have you ever seen some of those? Have any of you ever been to the British Museum in London? You go to the British Museum in London, they have these. I mean, men, some of the statues start at that wall and go all the way to the parking lot. Massive statues of their gods and their pharaohs. Remember, Pharaoh was a god. And they, they just left the civilization like that. A world filled with gods and the representatives of the gods everywhere. They're about to go into Canaan, where uh, another civilization, a world filled with gods, and they were fertility gods, headed by Baal and his, his consort Asherah. Immorality and gross, gross idolatry. But here's God saying, I am the one true and only God. And proposition number one is, you can't mix worship of me, devotion of me to me with any other God. I'm not into syncretism. You know what syncretism is? Putting things together. Mixing the worship of the one true God with the worship of Baal or Amun-Ra or Marduk or anyone else. No. You shall have no other gods before me. That's who I am. I'm the unique, one and only true God. And I insist on a commitment to that radical, monotheistic proposition. Because of who I am and what I've done for you. I was just going to comment. I just had a note that it said before or beside me or besides me. So it's not like just that he's the first God, but he's the only God. That's right. Besides, or you could translate that in addition to me. 
which is, and you, I'm sure you know the history of Israel, the children, but that's exactly what they do. Okay, Lord, we'll worship you, but we would really like to add the worship of Baal. That's okay, isn't it? And by the way, we're going to erect some Asherah poles right next. Asherah was the female. That's okay with you, isn't it, Lord? And God, we're going to keep the high places where the Canaanite worship centers are when we go in and conquer the promised land. That's okay with you, isn't it? No, it's not okay with me. It, it, again, you have to, and Joel really nailed it there. The Hebrew actually is saying, you shall have no other gods in addition to, before, plus me. It is I, because predicate nominative correct grammar, it is I and no one else because of who I am. Because Baal, Baal, this is the Canaanite god, Baal, Baal was a fertility god that explained the fertility of the land in the eastern Mediterranean. And so you erected statues of him that made him look like a fertility god. What's the matter with that? If God is spirit and he's the eternal creator of all things, you can't make a statue of him. There's no way you can make a visible, tactile, objective statue of God. So that's why the second one, you should not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, on earth, beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? For the Lord, your God, is a jealous God, punishing the children from the sin of the parents of the third and set it for those who hate him. Now, stop there for just a minute. Because of who God is, commandment number one, proposition number one, therefore, and that's why I put it there in the slot, a radical commitment to the honor, worship, and adoration of God. God is a jealous God. You see that? Did you ever think of God in that way? Because when you use the word jealous, Usually that's not used in a positive way in human relationships, is it? So what does it mean that God is a jealous God? Loving. Loving. And? Loving, shared with others. Yeah, I'm just not one of them. Please don't mix me with them. If you, you know, in the book of Jeremiah, which is not an easy prophet to study, but in the book of Jeremiah, over and over again, God says, I'm a jealous God. Do not go whoring after other gods. That's, what? Whoring after other gods. Now, you don't need me to explain what whoring means, do you? It's spiritual adultery. And one of the things, this is an original phrase with me. It comes from a man named Philip Yancey. But the theme in the book of Jeremiah is God as a jilted lover. He loved this one. He did everything for them. He provided everything for them. He established the covenant relationship. And when they go after other gods, the Baals, the Astro, all these others, and mix their worship with him, He's hurt by that. And spirit's adultery. You can see the image, can't you? 
You make a commitment, a covenant commitment to your wife, that's for life. I'm not going to share my bed with any other woman. She's mine. I'm not going to give allegiance and loyalty to any other. She's mine. I'm not going to try to share my emotional feelings with another woman. It's when she's mine. That's what God is saying. Don't try to share me with someone else. I exclusively am in a covenant relationship with you. That's what he means by, I'm a jealous God. I have done all of this for you, my people. And I'm asking from you, my people, covenant love and loyalty. I don't want you to go whoring after other gods. I don't want you to be engaged in spiritual adultery. And that that, that, that and God, God says in the rest, this has very, very serious consequences if you do it. And did you see that language? God punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? You have to really unpack that through Scripture. But this is the point. What you choose to do in your relationship with me will affect your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. Because if you choose to rebel against me and choose to mix worship with me with other gods, what are the odds your children will do that? Pretty high. Your grandchildren, pretty high. Great-grandchildren. You, or, let's put it the positive way. If you choose loyalty and love for me, again, I'm putting it in human terms, what are the odds your children will choose to do that? Your grandchildren. See? I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, an historian did a study of two individuals in colonial America and showed four generations. One individual was Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's probably the greatest theologian in America ever produced. He was a, a, a key figure in the first great awakening in American colonial history in the 1730s and 40s. And then he chose a man that no one has ever heard of, but he was a man in jail who just defied everything that was in colonial Massachusetts. And I can't remember all the numbers, but coming from Jonathan Edwards, there's something like 60 pastors, three vice presidents, 14 senators, 41 members of the House of Representatives, countless attorneys, and then this man, this man. Unbelievable number of people, murderers, thieves, uh, extortionists, going through four generations. Point, how you choose to live your life is going to impact your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. What God is saying is, look, this is how I've made my world. And the choices you make now are going to impact your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. So choose to love and be loyal to me. God, God has a commitment to us. Yes. He's just merely asking us to Commitment. Commit to him, that's right. I don't, I don't want to say merely. No, it, yeah, it is. But I know what you mean. That's exactly right. And let's just put it the way you put it, but start it with the word because. Because God loves and has a commitment to me. He is reasonable in asking for me to have a commitment of love and loyalty to him. 
But he gives us the choice. We're not robots. We're not automatons that he forces us to do this. That's why it's really, really, really significant, man, how we live our lives. It really is significant. And I don't know about you, if any of you have sons, but I see my son in me, both positively and negatively. But I mean that. As as I talk to Jonathan, and my son is 30, almost 34 now, but he lives in England with his family and so on. So we do a lot of FaceTime talking, email stuff. But even some of the things Jonathan says, oh my goodness, I know where he got that. (laughs) Oh my, Jonathan. And then other times it'll be real pile. Oh good, that's wonderful. And as we watch them, as we watch Jonathan and Irene raise George, our grandson, oh my goodness. So, I think, uh, oh my goodness, it is a quarter up. Quarter. Um, do, you, do you see what is going on in the Ten Commandments or the moral law or the ethical framework God is creating? So if that's true, then he has every right in number seven, verse seven, you shall not misuse, or the, the Hebrew word is take in vain, vain means empty, meaningless, frivolous, the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not holy one guiltless who misuses his name. And misusing or treating in vain as empty, meaningless, frivolous, God's name is both thought and deed. Because if God is who he says he is, and his names have the meaning they have, Yahweh, Elohim, it matters how we use that name. Now, we usually interpret that, or should say apply that, to profanity, and that's a part of it. But it actually is much deeper than that. Because the names, and I'll use that plural, the names of God are revelatory. Do you know what I mean by revelatory? The revealing truth. Revealing who he is. So don't talk about God only as if he's your drinking buddy. You know, in a way he's your friend. Jesus says that in, in, in the Gospel of John. But he's much more than that. So it's, it's the language we use when we talk about God matters because of who he is. All right. I think what we're going to do is stop. Before we get into commandment number four or standard number four is Shabbat, Sabbath. I really want to spend some time on that. I want to go to a couple of places in the New Testament. I want to see and explore with you why this is so foundational, even in 2017, how should we should think about that. So remember your two thought paper assignments that I gave you? Not one of you that remembers it at all, and I, I'm just kidding. But I just some dad love to do that, but I won't, I guess. All right, let's uh, pray, and we'll, we'll make a word of prayer for Andrew. But think about him. That you say it's this afternoon is your appointment. Yeah, 145. All right, Father. First of all, we want to thank you for loving us and caring for us, for creating us. 
each one of us around these tables uh, is important to you. Each one of us bears your image. We both resemble you and represent you. We also, I hope everyone around these tables has made that faith commitment to Christ. And they're allowing him through his Holy Spirit who indwells us to transform us and change us. We are secure in our position, but we are being transformed now into the image of Christ. And even as we study things like the Ten Commandments and this history of Israel in the book of Exodus, we see the significant working of you in history, in the lives of people, transforming them, forming the nation of Israel, fulfilling your promises you made to Abraham, adding to those promises the law for a period of time, all with a clear purpose in mind. Thank you, too, that each one of us in this side of the cross, which we'll celebrate this Friday and the glorious resurrection on Sunday, is, is a precious treasure to you. You do not want us to share our allegiance and loyalty to you with any other God or any other thing. And the analogy you use so often is that between a husband and a wife or a wife and a husband. That purity of that relationship is how we should look at the purity of our relationship with you. We don't share you with anyone else. You are our unique one and only God who redeemed us as well as creating us. And you're transforming us into the image of your son. That's all a part of what you're doing. We, each one of us, thanks you and praises you for that. And even this Sunday, as we uh, presumably will be in church and we, we rejoice and sing all the praises of the resurrected Christ, that is the linchpin of our faith. Because the tomb is empty and because you live, we can conquer anything. We can face tomorrow. We can face the challenges that the future brings because you live, Jesus. You have been resurrected from the dead, conquered sin, conquered death, and now we're free. Lord, I pray for Andrew today as he goes to the pulmonary specialist. Um, I pray you'll give great wisdom and discernment to that doctor. If there is a problem, something in his lungs or some other issue, he can discern that and deal with that. So we really commit him to you. We're trusting you, Lord, with this. We're asking you to provide insight through this uh, doctor to what the problem is and propose a solution. So, Lord, we're really committing you to that. We're trusting you with it, and we're, gonna, we're going to yield all of this in dependence on you. And any other special needs here among the men, I, I know them, but really I don't know them well, so I don't know all that they're wrestling with or what issues or concerns or burdens they're bearing. But I know you can bear each one. So just we pray for each one, whatever those special needs might be. So, Lord, again, we dismiss now with your blessing. And I pray that this weekend will be just a triumphant remembrance of all that Jesus has done for us. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.